Thank you for downloading this episode of Software Gone Wild, a podcast focused on everything software defined. To get more episodes and explore other SDN and network automation resources, visit sdn.ipspace.net. Welcome to another software-driven episode of Software Gone Wild. A long while ago, we had a number of podcasts with Luke Gorey discussing SnapSwitch, a software switch that runs on x86 and produces some miraculous results like 20 gigabits of traffic processed per core. And lately, it's all been quiet. So it's time to do another podcast with Luke and hear what's new, what people are doing with SnapSwitch, what's been going on, what the progress has been. So welcome back, Luke. How's life? Life is good. Thank you very much for having me back. And with me, as always, to keep me honest, are Nick Buraglio and David G. Hi. Hey. Hello, hello. So, look, to get started, what's new with SnapSwitch? What have you guys been doing in the last year or two since we last spoke? So, we've been doing a lot of things. I think the cool thing with SnapSwitch now is that it's been fanning out quite a bit. There's a lot of people doing their own projects, building on Snap. Uh, particularly people working in, in network operators of various uh, shapes and sizes. So the really cool thing that's happening, the thing that gives the project a lot of meaning to me, is that ordinary people who, who are not kind of professional system programmers are having a networking problem and downloading the downloading Snab and cooking up their own solution to it, which is really kind of cool. And so then what I've been doing mostly is trying to kind of keep up with the demands for new people coming into the system and, and getting up and running. So it's a lot of um, kind of tooling and helping people go from kind of zero to network data plane hacker uh, as quickly and smoothly as possible and with as few hiccups uh, as possible. So you're saying that someone with some basic programming skills and some understanding of how networking actually works and a little bit of ability to read Wireshark can just pull down the snap switch code and start hacking and we'll have a solution eventually. Yeah, so that's the idea. And this is borne out by uh, some pretty cool projects in practice. I got a couple I'm, I'm kind of itching to mention. Okay, go on. We had we went to this uh, false dem conference a few months ago, and it was really nice. It was a whole bunch of snap hackers, you know, a dozen of us or so anyway, all getting together and drinking a lot of beers and talking about the projects that we do. Because a lot of the things that people do with Snab is something that they use in their work as part of their day-to-day -day job. And while it's not a secret, it's also not like a product, so it's not something that's publicized. You actually have to kind of have a beer with somebody to find out what they've been up to. And there was some really cool stuff. So one I really liked was a guy working at a CDN, and they have you know a rack of servers uh, serving up a lot of content. And there's a one terabit uplink to each rack. And when they're troubleshooting the network, they need to be able to do you know some kind of diagnostics in real time on a one terabit link. And they just downloaded Snab. And uh, hooked. They already had some servers with uh, optical taps on their terabit, and you know that, that was fanned out to a few servers um, onto 10 gig ports. And they just ran Snap on all of those, and they they uh, sit around writing Lua scripts and inspecting the, the kind of terabit data stream in real time, and either just pulling the data that they need straight out of it, or you know, or converting it into some format that they can put it in a database and, and look a bit deeper at. 
which I thought was super cool. And they mentioned specifically that in that organization, they have a big development department, you know, that can do, uh, you know, C programming with DPDK and all of that kind of stuff. But if you want to get things solved in that way, it's a lot more kind of lead time. It's a more heavyweight, complex thing. And the thing that Snab helps them with is to just the network engineers to just whip up their scripts and get their answers without having to kind of uh, cross organizational boundaries, which I thought was one of the coolest uh, Snab stories I've heard recently. So in this case, uh, Snap would be doing traffic filtering? So in that case, it's really just doing inspection. So the way it works is you have a rack of servers, and some of them are actually uh, you know, CDN edge nodes serving up content. And then you also have all of the links coming in. You have optical taps pulling them over to other servers, uh, where you can kind of have a bit of flexibility in what you deploy. And in that case, the software environment on the server is, is fairly strict. It's fairly locked down. But because SNAB is a little single uh, binary executable, a couple of megabytes with no dependencies, you can just kind of SCP it across and run it there. So in that environment, SNAB is it's extracting whatever they need to know at that time. I think it's all very ad hoc. They have something in the network that they're concerned about, some kind of an issue, and they, you know, they can't get the answers they, that they need, just looking at statistical counters on routers and that kind of stuff. They need to look in the, in the traffic, in the payloads, in you know, I don't know what it would be at any given time, DNS uh, records, something. And they just write some Lua code to do it. And then it's done and they kind of get back to whatever whatever else they were doing until the next problem comes along. Effectively, they're replacing Wireshark filters with Lua code and doing that at terabit speeds. Right. Yeah. And, and either just kind of printing out the data they need or extracting it into you know some other format that can go into a larger system for cross-referencing and that kind of thing, which I thought was pretty cool. You also had uh, Alex Gall on at least once or twice, also in the very early days. He was like the very first user of Snab, if I remember correctly. And he's got a couple of systems up in production at Switch now. And one of them is kind of uh, similar. He's getting all of the IP fix uh, records for the network, seeing what's going on um, just with a Snab application that he's cooked up uh, partly himself and partly together with the gang at Egalia. And he's just, you know, just doing it. One guy part-time uh, who's, you know, who's, <laughs> whose real job is running a network. But he, uh, in his spare cycles with Snap, he's able to actually build, you know, multiple uh, production bits of network kit and, and deploy them, which I, I think is just awesome. Okay, for everyone who hasn't been listening to the podcast we did with Alex, he's working for the Swiss Academic Network, right? Yeah, and I, as I recall, the first time you had him on, like Snap was a, a, an Ethernet driver and kind of nothing else. So you know, it would just give you a packet as uh, as an array of bytes in memory. And so Alex is actually the guy who did a lot of the early work on supporting frameworks for, you know, deconstructing packets and skimming off headers and all of that kind of stuff. It's kind of really cool how he's just taken that, taken it and run with it, you know, and he's still running with it. Yeah, well, in those days, what you did was you were focused on moving the Ethernet frames back and forth at the maximum speed. And him being the proper computer scientist, he wanted to have this recursive framework where you could do packet parsing, you know, the way packet parsing should be done. Yeah, right. And he built that. And now, you know, lots of people are using that and he's using it. And uh, and he's built uh, kind of a lot of other stuff. He's been working on, on the drivers and all kinds of stuff. It's just really cool. You know, we had another thing. Let me let me just mention as well. Uh, there was the big RIPE conference just recently. And there was a really, really cool talk there. This is at kind of the other end of the scale from an operator in Greece who deployed a SNAB-based IPv4 over IPv6 um, address family transition uh, system. And that's a really cool bit of a SNAB ecosystem coming together. So the, the cool thing about the talk was that they brought in four vendors to deploy this IPv4 over IPv6 address family transition system. 
And it's a new kind of standard. So none of the vendors actually had a finished product. So they had four vendors kind of coming to site with partially developed products and seeing the kind of hardcore requirements that they had on testing and management and performance and everything and kind of trying to uh, hack, you know, at site basically to get everything up and running. And they, they tortured these uh, four vendors for a while. And eventually they settled on a solution that was based on Snab, a system that Egalia developed for doing the, the data plane. And then that Marcel Viguet, who you've also had on this podcast at Juniper, uh, took and, and turned into a Juniper product and you know combined it with the Juniper VMX for uh, kind of control plane things. So that's also kind of a cool thing to see that someone you know, can, can develop their own application uh, again in Lua and you know very, very rapidly actually becomes a kind of a, a product you can order from Juniper and that is deployed in production on a, you know, on a network for the kind of the, the most performance intensive element in any network. So that I thought was super cool too. Yeah, I remember doing that podcast with Marcel where he explained how he hacked together. How did he hack together the VMX and uh, the Snap switch? I can't remember it. Snap forwarded on um, packets, I think, via... So Snap obviously received packets from the NIC, and then obviously that forwarded on packets to the um, KVM-based uh, control plane. Um, weirdly, in, in our last internal hackathon, um, I converted the onboard application that took data from Snap and put it into Junos. I converted it into Go from Python. So it's been a bit of a small world coming together, this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I feel so out of the loop because I haven't hacked anything in Snap. (laughs) Oh, wow. Really? In 2018, you haven't hacked anything in Snap? Wow. No, not yet. (laughs) It's probably going to happen this week now, though. (laughs) Which brings me to the nasty question of the podcast. I always have a nasty question for every podcast. Why is everyone talking about Berkeley packet filters in Linux kernel and no one is talking about Snap? It's interesting. So Snap, I kind of like the kind of level that we're cruising at. It's a kind of a grassroots project. Most people who get involved in the project just kind of stumbled on it and come to the GitHub repository and joined. We have a Slack channel, which a bunch of us hang out in and chat on every day. And it kind of grows in a kind of a quiet and uh, incremental way, which I find very comfortable and very pleasant. And yeah, you see these other waves of things, like it was when we first started Snab, it was OBS. If you told anybody about Snab, they're like, why, 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 would, you build a, why would you build a new data plane when there's OpenFlow? You know, OpenFlow has solved everything. What, 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 didn't, didn't you get the memo, you know? And then it was, you know, OBS, DPDK, and then it's VPP, and now it's VPF. And there's this kind of every two or three years, there's the the one kind of big thing that uh, that everyone is really excited about. And, you know, those things are all cool, but there's a really kind of a bright spotlight that shines on them. And we're not one of those projects. We don't have, you know, the, the vendors sending, you know, uh, armies of uh, programmers in trying to vie for control by, by having the most core developers and that kind of thing. And uh, it's actually really nice that way. So in, in terms of BPF then, in case... I rewind back. So I went to a meetup uh, last year in the north of the UK, and there was a presentation there on, on BPF. And uh, I think the nice thing is from that side, and just playing devil's advocate here, is a lot of systems people, so Unixy people, like the idea of, you know, it's on a system that they, you know, potentially understand and, and the tools are re- relatively easy to place, you know, to, um, ah, whatever you call it, place um, like virtual code into, into the BPF system. In terms of that versus Snab, and I know you're probably going to say Snab might be easier, but that might be from familiarity. Is there any kind of comparisons you can give, you know, why one over the other? Is, is one, you know, maybe use BPF for simple things and Snab for more complicated things? I mean, I, I don't know here. I'm just trying to, 
you know, if anybody listening to this going, well, why BPF over SNAB or why SNAB over BPF? Are there any kind of, you know, one, two, threes or ABCs that you can share? Well, sure. So the way, the way I think about it anyway is that SNAB is just a program. It's just a program in the sense that everything else on your computer, you know, your normal applications are just programs. Your text editor is just a program and your web browser is just a program. So when you're writing SNAB code, the rules of writing programs are what apply, you know, and it's just kind of straightforward. So BPF is, is not just a program, right? It's a, an extension of the Linux kernel, which is a special kind of special purpose virtual machine, which is very, very kind of minimal. And in my mind, uh, BPF is the latest in a kind of evolution chain from, how, how should I put this? Let me take a run at the, from this direction to try to explain how I see BPF fitting into the world. So the Linux kernel has a data plane, which has various features. And it's always been the case that Linux makes some things easy and convenient and nice and other things uh, much more difficult. And that you've always had this tension that if you need to do some processing in the kernel, but you hit a limit of the kernel and you need to punt it up to user space, then you kind of pay a heavy price for that. And a lot of systems have kind of died on that hill of not being able to get the performance that they need with an application that spans both the kernel and user space. And the way that the kernel has tried to deal with this over time is to just evolve more and more general and more and more powerful features in the kernel so that you don't have to do things up in user space. And, you know, we had IP chains, we had IP tables, we had open vSwitch, and now we have eBPF. And I really see, from my point of view, I see BPF as a pretty straightforward next step after uh, open vSwitch. So with open vSwitch, you have an open flow data plane, more or less. And um, it's actually the, like the bottom half of an open flow data plane inside the kernel. And then anything you can express as you know rules for the bottom half of an open flow data plane, you can push into the kernel and you know do down there. And I think that a lot of people found this model a little bit limiting and they wanted something more general. And then EPPF is the next level of generality. So with EBPF, you can write a program, but it's not a normal program. So I say that SNAB is just is just a program. It works like every other program. <laughs> EBPF is not really like that, right? It's like uh, what would you compare it to. It's probably more like the kind of program you would deploy on an Apple II or something like that. You know, it's going to be a very, very, very small bit of code running in a very limited environment, and it's very powerful compared with IP tables. You know, it's much more general than that because it's modeled on a kind of a normal virtual machine, but it's still a far cry from kind of just uh, normal programming. I like eBPF, and I think it's really interesting what's happening down there. And I think that every time the kernel comes along with a new generation of kind of powerful functionality, it redefines this border between uh, user space and the kernel. And it's relevant to SNAB as well, because if you can do something well with the kernel, then you don't necessarily need to do it with SNAB. In some sense, the most interesting problems for us are the ones that the kernel can't deal with. And, you know, that's a set that's redefined every time they come along with a new set of functionality. I might be rambling at this point. Right. I mean, the point you made there, you know, being able to do the things that and focus on the things that maybe the internal code is not great at doing is a nice option to have and probably a good space to be in. And I just wanted to make a quick comment that, you know, back in the very early days of my career in HPC networking, we used to lament the fact, you know, we're talking, you know, 2001 or so. We used to lament that there weren't a lot of great options for tuning the network stack in the Linux kernel for HPC applications for throughput and stuff like that. And now there are so many different options that it's almost dizzying to figure out 
how you want to decide to make your Linux stack, your Linux networking stack tuned to the parameters you need. So we went from one end of the pendulum to the other, you know, swing with, you know, limited options to lots of different options that have lots of different specialties. And, and that's history that maybe some people don't have. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, Nick, you just described XKCD standards. You know that, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, you know, another thing, if I may, just on the same topic of kind of like redefining the borders between systems and what is each system good for, allow me to kind of brain dump my semi-organized thoughts on that topic, if you would indulge me. Sure. So the Linux kernel has a really, a really nice network stack, has a lot of really, really, really nice features, and it's actually a really good bit of software. And the upstream community is very effective, and there's just a lot that is very good about the kernel. The main limitation that it has is that the stack itself is basically optimized for really big packets arriving at a fairly low rate. That's the basic thing, right? So like the Linux kernel to get good performance, the average packet size is like 64 kilobytes or something. Because if you're Netflix uh, edge node or something, you know, you're serving up big files and, and the kernel is able to kind of coalesce a lot of things. So that is something that has become a problem for people. And that now that people want to do more like like service provider networking on x86, then your average packet size is not 64K, it's more like you know 300 bytes or something in that ballpark. And the kernel has not been able to deal with that, and they had a few years to kind of uh, you know get their, get their act together on that, and they were not really able to. And that's what kind of opened up a lot of opportunities for other projects to come along, which, which is a great thing because you, know, you, need, you need a little bit of uh, space and oxygen. And of course, DPDK is the big one that, that was able to capitalize on that. So DPDK, in my mind, DPDK is basically like the Linux kernel. It's like people just started over writing an application that's more or less the Linux kernel, but it runs in it runs in user space, but kind of not in a significant way because the programming style is, you know, if you look, if you compare DPDK code with kernel code, it kind of looks the same. The difference is that DPDK is optimized for the small packets, while the kernel is optimized for the big packets. Like the first approximation, I would say that's the distinguishing features between those two. So if, so for people who really, really like the kernel and like are comfortable with that style of programming, comfortable with that style of maintenance and everything, but they want to do service provider networking, it's a very comfortable to just hop over into DPDK and keep doing what they were always doing, but you know with a system that's optimized for the workloads that are, that are more relevant to them. And then the kernel's not so happy, I guess, about um, DPDK coming along. I guess most kernel people kind of don't like DPDK. And, and to be honest, I don't like DPDK either, but that's fine because it's not really for people like me. And so a really interesting thing happening now is this uh, XDP, uh, I think stands for Express Data Plane in the Linux kernel. And that's where they're kind of saying that, they're kind of saying that, okay, so if a, if a packet comes all the way into the network stack and it's got to hit all of the, you know, the locks and the synchronizations and all of these things to, to access the kernel's kind of... Uh, network stack data structures, then you can't do high packet rates. So what about if you would allow some processing to be done separately from that? So when a packet comes in, you have, instead of, you know, instead of hitting it with IP tables and this kind of thing, you have some other whole other way of dealing with the packet before or instead of hitting the normal stack. And that's where the eBPF thing is really, this is a very interesting application of BPF. So a packet comes in on an interface and you've attached an eBPF program, which is basically a little script saying what should happen when a packet comes in on that interface, and this can be executed in different ways. It doesn't have to do all of the kind of painfully slow synchronization that the kernel networking stack does. It can just run kind of uh, you know, on receive in much the same way that SNAB or DPDK run things. It can also be pushed down into the NIC, since you can get NICs these days that, that have uh, eBPF kind of uh, virtual machines, so to speak, 
And the really potentially interesting thing I would say is this AFXTP socket feature where you can actually get the packets and pump them up to user space. So this is, in principle, this is the feature that the SNAB crowd, all of us have been just dying for, where the kernel does all the boring stuff with managing the network devices, but when it gets a packet, it, uh, you know, after a very casual inspection, it pumps it up to user space very, very, very quickly so that we can do the real work on it. So that's really exciting, although I don't think it's going to pan out. It hasn't landed upstream yet. Always when features land up in the Linux kernel that are supposed to be good for user space people, uh, they, they never really work out. There's always, you know, there's this long procession of features that are never quite the right thing, and it just becomes one more thing to bypass. But putting that pessimism aside, there's a lot of kind of uh, wonderful potential there for the kernel to actually expose the interface the user space wants and applications like Snap want. And I guess uh, they could, I guess what a lot of kernel people are probably motivated by uh, is that they might be able to kind of uh, defend, reclaim some turf from DPDK in doing that. Okay, look, sorry, you said that really quickly. So what was that? Was that the <laughs> AFT socket feature? Sorry, it's a kind of socket for protocol family or address family XDP, Express Data Path. So it's some really, really clever people at Intel, mostly, as I understand it, uh, have come up with a way to make an eBPF program basically just do the talking to a NIC. So basically, you have an application like Snab or anything else. And the idea is that you could send a little bit of eBPF code down into the kernel and have this run when there's some activity on a NIC. And all it would do is kind of just set up the, the receive buffers in the NIC so that the packets will be sent directly up into a user space application. So the idea here is that you would just kind of, it would be a kind of a very, very minimal and secure way for a user space application to have the kernel direct traffic up in a pretty uh, minimal and very efficient way, you know, giving about the same performance as completely bypassing the kernel as we do in SNAB and as they do in DPDK. Thank you. I'm kind of I'm on a roller coaster with the XDP thing because I, I really like the, the idea of the feature. And I think if it's implemented in the right way, it would be just perfect for us. But I also can see the way the kind of um, the way all of these projects like the kernel and DPDK and everything work is that you come up with a feature and it's really cool. And then every single hardware vendor gets to come along and put their kind of a stamp on it before it ever gets into the hands of application developers like me. So I can see that the feature is what I want, and I know how it should be implemented from my perspective. But I just this week, I'm following the discussion on the NetDev mailing list about, you know, how does this NIC vendor want to change it? And how does this one want to change it? And uh, my feeling is that it's going to end up with a very complicated interface towards user space that, you know, maybe DPDK will be able to accept, but in Snab, we'll kind of say, well, that's a bit yucky. And that's you know, just because somebody somewhere made a weird network that has this constraint doesn't mean I'm going to turn my application inside out to kind of uh, support that. So it's a bit of a give and take between the application people and the, and the NIC people. And the NIC people, uh, hardware people in general, are much better represented in projects like the Linux kernel and DPDK. By the way, one of the challenges that Snap always had, like you mentioned, was how do you integrate the snap switch with the control plane running on the x86? And BPF, for example, or XDP doesn't have that problem because in the end, if they do nothing, the packet by default lands in the Linux kernel and then it just sends to whatever socket is listening to whatever port on whatever IP address. So how are you solving the problem of integration with the control plane or even doing simple things like ARP or neighbor discovery? Anything new in snap? Snap-based project takes their own approach here. Personally, I just do all the control plane code in Snap. That's my approach. 
In my career, I very, very often try to take the shortcut by outsourcing work to the kernel, and it's very seldom turned out to be a shortcut in my experience, so I don't go down the road very much. But other people do. So, you know, one example, well, okay, specifically on the case of talking with a Linux kernel, there's another guy who chat with on our Slack channel, working at, I believe, a hosting company, and they use, like, these Netlink interfaces where you can talk to the kernel and manipulate interfaces and you know, see up tables and just manipulate the, the kernel control plane. So there are hooks in the kernel where you can interface, and some people are just doing that so that they can get a synchronized picture between the kernel data plane and their SNAB application about, you know, uh, what the up table looks like and all of that kind of thing. And then they can very selectively punt some traffic into the kernel via a tap device, for example. Like, we, we have a variety of ways in SNAB that we can punt packets into the kernel. You wouldn't want to do it with every packet. So I guess, yeah, I guess the new thing is that there are people doing that kind of thing. And I think there are multiple projects doing that. And I think they're probably all taking similar approaches to a lot of, well, you know, the other software routers and that kind of stuff. I don't know. You'd have to hop onto our Slack channel and, and ask people how they're doing it in more detail. So in theory, you could just catch packets based on their destination Mac or IP address and redirect them to a tap interface. And so eventually they would land in kernel and you could probably get them back the same way through some other tap interface. And then obviously you would have to use something like you said, Netlink to on the other side of kernel see what these packets actually did to kernel state, like install the new ARP entry or something, right? Yeah. And I think the cool thing, I, the thing that I find kind of novel is that in this scenario, you actually have a snab process owning the network card, the high-speed network card, and doing all of the driver work, and then feeding packets over a tap device to the kernel. So in that sense, SNAB is actually providing the network to the kernel, which is kind of a role reversal from what the kernel usually does, right? Yeah, and if that thingy on the other end of the tap interface happens to be a VMX running in a virtual machine, we have Marcel's solution, right? Yeah, right. So there's a lot of uh, different control planes around, a lot of different you know, features and integrations. And yeah, there are people doing all of these integrations. And I don't know, I should emphasize, I just don't know that much about this stuff because I'm, uh, I'm more of a first principles kind of a guy. I, I would always personally tend to do stuff, um, just implement it in Snab. In terms of Lua, so I'm, I'm just going to talk about something I saw on Twitter really, on Luke. And obviously we were talking about writing C in, in the right way. And maybe Lua is the simplest way. So have there been any any kind of advancements in Lua recently, or are you just finding that people are happy to write write this kind of code in Lua as opposed to C? And is it is it like a, a skill set problem as well, or a skill set shortage? Get my words out. That is a very topic close to my heart uh, right <laughs> now. And and it, actually, this this whole question of how does one put it? So in Snab, the idea is that you write all of your data plane code in Lua, and since Lua is a high-level language, you can also write control plane and management plane and everything code in the same way if you want to. You know, you just have this kind of warm, fuzzy, high-level scripting language that you can do everything with. And to the first step is working really, really smoothly. So Lua is a pretty small and simple language. So if your background is Python or Perl or Ruby or JavaScript or whatever, you can probably read the Lua book over the weekend and be up and running because it's, it's a small and familiar language with you know, it's a, a simple dynamic language that doesn't suck, which is pretty neat. And the experience seems to be that when people sit down to write a Snab application, they actually get it up and running and working pretty easily and pretty comfortably. And that's great. But it is, there are other challenges that come after that. So the biggest challenge is that when you want to actually put your application into production, uh, you need to optimize it. And the Lua JIT 
compiler, the just-in-time compiler that we use, is very, very, very effective, and it actually does produce code that's competitive with C. But to use it effectively, you need to have a pretty solid mental model of how it works. And the way it works is different to every other compiler you've ever used. And there's no documentation on how it works. And there's almost no kind of tooling to show you, you know, the way your program is working in terms of, of the way it should work. So it's so evidence-based, really, then. So I guess if you're trying to optimize, it's kind of like, I think I need to tweak X. Let's implement X and see what happens. It's almost kind of like a, a push, poke, and feel exploration, I guess. Yeah, there, there has been way too much of that. So that's been our biggest problem, is that when people want to put something into production, there's too much guesswork involved. And, you know, it's, it's very frustrating to work in that way. Nobody wants to work in that way. And that's something I've been doing lots and lots and lots of work on over the past kind of year or so. And it's all just about just kind of coming out the gate now how to summarize this so well first of all the, the really good thing is that with with the jit compiler it's quite easy to get the program up and running it doesn't always perform the way you want and it can take you a very long time to figure out kind of what tweaks you need to make to get the right performance but the great thing is that the it usually is very 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 small changes like one line here or one line there i think in a lot of languages you can write a kind of a prototype and then when you want to optimize it you need to basically rewrite the whole program in a completely different style and it's not that not that way in our experience with Lua. What we find is that it can take a long time to get an accurate mental model of how the program is running and why any performance problems are there. But once you understand it, it's usually just a really, really small change to the source code to put everything right. So I'm going to throw a spanner into that into that whole idea. So if you mm -hmm. have somebody who's new to Lua, somebody who's even new to, to scripting and building, I guess they could be in the position of where they have to rip the whole thing up and, and start again. So I think that sounds like an experience comment. So if you kind of, you, you've made a model, you've done some drawings, you kind of figure out this has to, you know, X has to flow to Y, Y has to flow to Z, I'm going to go off and build that thing. Then you make mm -hmm. a minor tweak to get it where you need it. Um, so from your experience, when beginners come to Lua, how do, how do they generally find it? Is it just a case of you just have to get used to building things in a certain way? I mean, is there like an architecture one, two, three guide for building these? So, you know, maximizing flow, removing bottlenecks, this kind of thing. So this is something that I would say I'm just kind of pushing out there now. So it's been a bit of a kind of figure it out yourself and ask questions, uh, you know, on GitHub and on the Slack and get help and kind of everybody help each other. Okay, so the big new thing happening in this space is that we forked the JIT compiler into a new branch called RaptorJIT, which is basically just a version that addresses all of the challenges that we've seen over the last kind of five or six years of snap hacking. So one, and this is all kind of new stuff that we're just bringing upstream into snap now. So one thing that we've done is we've overhauled all of the tracing and profiling support so that it's very efficient and it can always be enabled at all times. So now with new VM, all the time that a Snap application is running, whether you're in production or in a benchmarking environment or just running casual tests on your machine, you have really extensive tracing and profiling data there. So if anything looks a bit funny to you, you have kind of got a capture of all the relevant data that you can look at yourself or you can send to somebody else. And if you have a production system, you can just kind of grab this very detailed data at any time and send it off for support and that kind of thing. That's um, very cool. We've spent a lot of time getting this up. And the other kind of big thing is, is a complementary bit where we've got a graphical interactive tooling now for analyzing the data and particularly for profiling. So now, whereas it used to be in the old days, your kind of profiler dump or your kind of compiler dump might be 100,000 lines text file of kind of machine code, more or less, and some other representations. Whereas now, what you get is a graphical interface where you can open up a profile, you can immediately see where time was being spent, how much time was spent in the NIC driver, and how much time was spent in the ARP responder, and how much time was spent in you know the routing lookups. 
and you can very kind of easily click around and see which bits are running effectively and which ones are not running so effectively and zoom in on any problems that you have. And I think I must emphasize that this is something that's just getting kind of uh, brought upstream into Snap now. I think this is going to be a kind of order of magnitude improvement in how quickly people can get an accurate mental model of how the compiler works and then also be able to get, as you say, real evidence from their actual running applications and pull that into some tooling so they can see what's really happening. Just to um, make it clear again, so the fork, by the way, of JIT that, that you um, have done, what was that called again? So this is called Raptor JIT. Okay. And it's a long story. But, you know, LuaJIT is, is an amazing compiler. So for me, LuaJIT is just an incredible piece of engineering in that it's, it's just in a class of its own in terms of having a really simple high-level language that can actually get competitive performance with C without having to jump through lots of hoops. Like, I've never seen anyone actually pull that off with a compiler before. So I think it's, it's kind of amazing. But that project, the guy behind it, he's not really doing new feature development now. And in the SNAB world, we got a lot of new features that we want. And so we just kind of decided about a year ago that it makes sense for us to bite the bullet and really kind of become experts on the internals of the VM and start, you know, making a roadmap for what we want in the VM, you know, in terms of profiling and making it easier to, to optimize programs and to just kind of execute on that. So that's been a, a big focus for me over the past 12 months or so. That's really a huge step and a huge amount of commitment as well to the project. I mean, that's really quite a quite a big undertaking. So yeah, I mean, wow. <laughs> just kind of all struck by that. You know, it's brilliant. It is a lot of work. And I really, really think that this compiler is something special. And most people, I don't think, believe, I mean, even if even when you know, you hear about it and you see it, it's, it's not real that you can write Lua scripts that are competitive with C. And you know that, you know, some guys go off to a, an operator and present you know, like an IPv4, IPv6 transition written in Lua and send that head-to-head with all of the, you know, professional system programmers actually, you know, win the project. So it's an amazing thing. So what I think is that the SNAB model of program development is is a nice thing that should be used more widely. I think this would be a really nice way also to write things like databases and hypervisors and, you know, even kind of kernels. I think it's kind of, um, I think Go is moving a lot into these spaces that have traditionally been kernel kind of things, but they're a little stuck at the control plane level in terms of performance, I think. And, and so I just see this great potential for a you know, really high-performance uh, Lua VM to actually allow a lot more programs to be written similarly to Snab, and that you know, we might have a lot of kind of cousin projects that are all happily sharing the same tooling, you know, the same VM, the same profilers and everything. So a big part of the work there is to take the experience we have in Snab and feed it back into the JIT compiler and then try and feed that out and get new projects started uh, building in the same way and kind of build up an ecosystem in that way. Nice. So one of the things that I was trying to rectify was, and development's not my core competency, so I, I don't remember a lot of these things, you know, in short-term memory, but Lua, the language, I think is, you know, for those that may not be, it might be a new term, it's also utilized in other network-related projects. I know there's some stuff around the Bro NSM IDS project that leverages this as a very fast and, and convenient uh, development language. And also, I believe all of the uh, NMAP scripting stuff is based on Lua, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So anyone that's ever used that maybe had been inadvertently familiarizing their self, themselves with that language and perhaps could migrate some of that over into the uh, into the SNAB space as well. Yeah, very much so. So Lua, and it's also used in Nginx and a few other kind of uh, high-profile projects as well. 
it's a pretty successful scripting language and traditionally it's been used for you know uh, control plane scripting kind of things and it's the kind of the new frontier to move into you know really low level data plane stuff so i think even within the lua world people think we're a bit crazy to be using it kind of um, down on this level but, but we find it actually works out really well so we're hoping to spread the word about that yeah, it's definitely been on my list of things to familiarize myself with a little better because it's very powerful and, you know, it can sort of apply itself to a lot of the things that I'm going to see every day. And it's a hard, I think it's a hard language to hate because it's kind of simple and it just kind of uh, doesn't doesn't get too carried away in any particular direction and it kind of borrows a lot of the things that have worked out well in other languages and it's just, I think it's just quite pleasant. So I think for, probably for most people working with Lua, it's maybe not their favorite language. You know, maybe they really, really, really love JavaScript or Smalltalk or Perl or something. But there's just not a lot to complain about with Lua. So if it solves your problem, you just kind of, you know, you learn it pretty quickly and you get hacking and, and you don't kind of um, don't kind of worry about that. Yeah, I don't know if anybody loves JavaScript, but I definitely, <laughs> I definitely love Perl. Yeah, right. So I, I guess with Lua, you know, you can uh, you can keep your love for Perl. It's not not trying to uh, convert you and make you renounce Perl. You know, it's just a <laughs> it's a language you can pick up quickly and get stuff done yep. with, you know? Yep. That's a shame. I looked at Lua 101 on the web when we were chatting, and yeah, it looks like a nice little language. It's an interesting history as well, you know, because Lua is developed in Portugal, and there's a whole implementation that's been developed there. Sorry, Brazil. There's a whole implementation that's been developed there for very, very, very many years now. And the one that we use is based on this one called LuaJIT, which we now forked, which is actually just developed by this very, very bright guy called Mike Paul in Munich. So he just wanted to make like the world's most awesome just-in-time compiler and went looking for a language that would suit it, and he found Lua. So he basically just from scratch rewrote the whole VM himself. That's the implementation that gives it this kind of uh, performance that's competitive with C. Impressive. Hopefully, I'm looking for some, some signs here, but uh, how are enterprises and Snap coming together? So obviously, service providers might see some monetary gains here, you know, bring some skills in, you know, pick up Lua, do, do some stuff with Snap. Enterprises obviously traditionally kind of go barking at vendors and, you know, hand over some cash and get something that's easy to operate. Are you seeing any kind of brave enterprises coming forward now? Um, so I've been tracking Snap, you know, loosely over the last few years, and I think enterprises are slowly getting braver. So from my perspective, I, I'm not seeing very much happening there. I see us, I see Snab really doing most things at the kind of the two extremes. On the one hand, you have the, the project where people are willing to do stuff in-house. They understand everything very well. They're already relying on themselves so much for so many things. And they just say, well, screw it. You know, what does it matter? It's like Alex at, at Switch. And on the other end, you have the big companies, you know, like, uh, like Deutsche Telekom, who are so big, they say, well, you know, uh, probably... If we can use some high-level tools, it's probably cheaper to build the system ourselves rather than pay license fees from some uh, commercial off-the-shelf kind of thing. So at, at those two extremes, there's things happening with Snap, but I, I haven't really seen as much happening in the middle, although I guess I wouldn't really be aware of it. So I know of at least one project where there is a product targeting you know, these kind of enterprises that does use Snap uh, under the hood, but it doesn't kind of say anything about Snap. So I guess in that sense, the companies who, who use that product don't know they're running Snab, and I guess it's just a kind of uh, an advantage for the vendor or a gambit for the vendor that they'll get, uh, you know, lower lower costs and faster time to market and and that kind of thing. So it's a good question. I didn't have an answer ready. <laughs> I guess the way it'll come into those spaces is behind the scenes as a, a under the hood technology. 
So Snap is becoming like OpenSSL or PFRing, the thing that everyone is using and no one mentions. I hope so. Yeah, I think there are worse places to be, I think. Yeah, I, I really like this being a, a kind of a small project that grows gradually with kind of interesting people joining the community and people just kind of solving their problems. I'm sure it's also very nice to be in the spotlight being the latest hot thing, you know, with the startup going for the billion dollar acquisition and all that kind of thing. But uh, I'm, I'm quite happy with, with the way that we're growing our little community. Oh, where's the fun in that? You don't want to be a billionaire. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's wrap it up right here. Look, if someone wants to know more about SnapSwitch, where should they go to? They should go to github.com slash snabco slash snab. And on the readme for our project, you'll find out all about uh, how to get in touch with all of us. Uh, so that also answers the question, how do they get in touch with you? Yes. So we have a little Slack channel, which is uh, quite a pleasant little hangout, and everybody is welcome there. And from the project readme, you can find a, a link to invite yourself over there. More than welcome. We love chatting with new people. Perfect. Thank you. And David and Nick, where can people find you guys? So uh, you can find me on Twitter at VTEP42 uh, or on the blog ipengineer.net. Uh, yeah, that's it for me. Well, you can find me on all the normal social medias at Braulio and also on my blog at forwardingplane.net. And uh, you can find me at ipspace.net. I'm Ivan Pepelniak. And if you want to reach me on Twitter or somewhere else, the links are usually at the bottom of each page. So just go and explore. And you've been listening to Software Gone Wild, and we'll be back with some more software goodness in three, four, maybe five weeks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Software Gone Wild. If you want to learn more about software-defined networking, network automation, and related topics, visit sdn.ipspace.net and explore our courses, books, webinars, and podcasts.